Welcome to Funding the Future, a special edition of Category Visionaries, where instead of interviewing founders, we interview the VCs and angel investors that back them with capital, resources, and advice. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Courtney Lipkin, partner at Sousa Ventures. Courtney, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks so much for having me, Brad. Not a problem. Super excited to chat. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a partner at SUSE. SUSE is a seed fund based in San Francisco. And I actually grew up in the Bay Area in the 90s, grew up in the North Bay. So I wasn't very exposed to venture and tech because uh, that whole ecosystem was down in Silicon Valley, squarely in the peninsula. And so I made my way into venture actually after grad school and have been happily at SUSE for the last three years, but started my seed investing career at first round capital in 2016. And take us back to your mindset when you were, let's say, 18, 19, 20 years old. Like, did you have any idea that eventually you'd end up doing something like this? Or like, at what stage in your life did venture come into your mind even? Yeah, Fred, that's a great question because for me, like I said, I didn't really have much of an understanding of the venture tech ecosystem. So as an 18-year-old, I went to college. I thought that I might be in the State Department. I studied international relations. And then through college, I realized, uh, you know, maybe government wasn't quite for me. And I actually started my career at a law firm because I thought, well, maybe I'd go to law school And kind of that deep research and writing element of the legal field was interesting to me. So I spent a couple of years at a boutique securities litigation firm in New York, and I liked the investigation side of things, but I didn't love the case law interpretation side of things. And so then I ended up um, going to grad school instead, thinking maybe I'd have a career as an academic. And it was at that shift when I was in my mid-20s, I came out to Stanford, so back to the Bay Area. And on campus at Stanford, as you probably know, it's extremely entrepreneurial and very tech-oriented because it is in the heart of Silicon Valley. And so it was there that I got my first real exposure to the impact that technology companies can have on established industries and also the way that tech companies can build entirely new industries like rideshare and delivery, like we've seen with Instacart coming out to the public markets just in the last couple of days. So it was my experience on campus at Stanford that really showed me the opportunity in tech and made me realize I wanted to be a part of it. And were your family and friends supportive of this idea and this move to tech early on? I know you'd mentioned you you didn't come from that world. So was this idea of moving to tech just insane for them or did they get it? You're at Stanford at that point and it, it kind of made sense. Yeah, I think I'm lucky that everyone in my life is very supportive and, you know, kind of risk oriented, entrepreneurial in their various fields. And so as I started working with tech companies, it happened organically. I was still pursuing my master's degree and I started working with organizations on campus that support early stage companies affiliated with the university. And so it was through that exposure and that work with the founders that I got to know what investing was because I was connecting these founders with venture capitalists that would come on campus looking for, you know, the new companies, the best and brightest, and I would be the ones making those introductions. And so it was a natural transition for me. And yeah, I did have a lot of support, luckily. 
Were you ever debating between the idea of going into venture or starting your own company? That's a great question. You know, the thing that I love about venture is that I get to work with founders every day. That's my favorite part of the job. I think founders are the most creative, optimistic, risk-oriented, energetic people there are, really. And in fact, I'm married to a founder. But I also know where my strengths and weaknesses are. And I think that I really spike more on the the research and writing part of being an investor and diligencing companies and understanding how to uncover risks and opportunities. And I like being a little bit of a solo operator. You know, that's what you are as an investor. We invest as partnerships and we do work on teams, but my day-to-day is often one-on-one with the founders that are in my portfolio or doing the research on my own and going down rabbit holes. And so that is a good fit for me from a personality and intellectual perspective. I think some founders that make a transition into venture after exiting their company realize, oh, wow, this is sort of a solo role. It's a little bit lonely. I love working on teams. I like rowing in the same direction, all of that. And so you do have to think, find the role that's a good personality fit for you. And in my case, I think venture suits me very well. And, and founding a company, I admire founders, but I don't know if that's exactly my path. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess you've seen firsthand, like probably the yeah. toll that it's taken on Spike as well. So <laughs> that's probably giving you some good perspective. I definitely have perspective there. Yeah. Now, when it comes to inspiration for you and people who've inspired you throughout your career, is there any one person that comes to mind? And if so, who is it? And what did they do to inspire you? Or what about what they do and was inspirational? Oh, that's a really interesting question. You know, I think I do gravitate towards, you know, creatives, creative people. And so I don't know that there's one person that really inspired me or catalyzed me to make a big shift like into venture into this world. But like I said, I, I have a, a background, more of an academic background studying urban planning policy. And I love the way that designers and artists and you know architects think about the world and think about incorporating cutting edge technology with human oriented design and actually thinking about how we as people move about our lives and access services and resources. And so I'd say, you know, anyone who's a creative with a design-oriented perspective is someone who is inspiring to me. And I like to work with founders who have that lens as well. And I think some of the best companies in the world have been built with that ethos in mind. Airbnb comes to mind built by designers. Another question we like to ask is about books. And we took this from Ryan Holiday. He calls them quake books. So a quake book is a book that like rocks you to your core. It really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quake books come to mind for you? Yeah, this is another great question. One of my favorite books that I've read is actually Walter Isaacson's biography of Leonardo da Vinci. He's obviously written about a lot of tech luminaries. And you know, I've read his other books about, you know, the giants of our industry. But his book on Da Vinci, which I believe he published in 2017, is absolutely fascinating to me because, you know, again, my orientation towards art and design, Leonardo Da Vinci being the definition of a Renaissance man, he was deeply immersed in both. But the thing that stood out to me was Da Vinci wasn't necessarily a genius, to put it in 
Walter Isaacson's words. He wasn't a genius the way that Einstein was a genius, but da Vinci's superpower was his insatiable curiosity. He could not ask enough questions. He was constantly peeling back layers to problems and trying to understand and using the tools and skill sets that he had to solve problems. And, you know, in one of da Vinci's codices, his notebooks, he made a little note in the margin one day to figure out how a woodpecker's tongue works. And why is that an important thing to know? Maybe it's not that important, but the fact that da Vinci just going through his life would observe things around him and note the most minute details and then follow that thread to its conclusion. That book really changed my perspective on what's important in terms of strengths and weaknesses in people. And I do think that insatiable curiosity is one of the biggest strengths that you can have as a founder, as a CEO, as a, as a venture investor, and it's definitely something that I strive for. A very timely book as well. I don't know if you've started to read it yet, but he obviously just came out with the Elon Musk book and I got it this weekend and I'm just plowing through it. I think I'm on like page 200 or something like that. And I just can't put it down. I had read the Steve Jobs biography and he's mm. just such an incredible writer and it yes. really does draw you in and, and make you want to read in a way that I find, you know, most biographies are a little bit boring, but his just really aren't that way. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, as students of history, venture investors should be aware of what came before in our industries. And yeah, reading his books all the way from covering Da Vinci to Elon Musk in the present day, I think is a good way for us to have perspective on progress and, and the type of person that really moves humanity forward. Totally agree. Now let's switch gears here and let's talk a little bit about Sousa Venture. So can you just give us maybe a high level overview? What's the fund size? What's the history of the fund? And maybe just any notable big name investments that the audience may have heard of. That would be a, a great place to start. Sure. So Suso was founded by my partners, Chad, Seth, and Leo in 2013 and started out as a small fund. It was a $25 million vehicle. They were investing in a lot of YC companies and uh, just getting the start out here on the West Coast. And we had some great early wins in that fund. Two of the big ones are Robinhood and Sexport. And those investments also kind of brought us down the path of investing more heavily into fintech companies and also into logistics and supply chain companies, uh, which have been great areas of focus for us over the years. So that was our first fund in 2013. In 2016, we raised our second fund, which was 50 million. So a jump up, but still, you know, I think a right size fund for an early stage vehicle. And then in 2019, when I joined, we raised a, a third fund, uh, which was 90 million. And again, kind of bumping up AUM and expanding the team a little bit with, you know, the addition of me and a few other members of the team. And then in 2021, we raised our fourth seed fund, which is 125 million. And right now we're kind of at the size I think that we want to be at in terms of where we can play in the market. We like to lead or co seed rounds. And our average check size is around a million and a half. And that feels very comfortable for us to build a portfolio of uh, 30 or so companies that we take you know, concentrated positions and given our fund size. And so as a product for our limited partners, we feel like this is sort of where we'll continue to play as we grow the fund in terms of raising future 
vehicles. But yeah, we've been based in the Bay Area. We do make investments around the United States and actually internationally as well. But the vast majority of our work and our headquarters are in San Francisco. Is Silicon Valley dying? When I read in the media, there's this you know, narrative out there that Silicon Valley is dying. Everyone's moving to Austin. Everyone's moving to Miami, or at least that was the big story like 12 months ago. What's your mm-hmm. perspective there? What's like the state of Silicon Valley? And do you think it's declining or is this a, a false narrative that's out there? I am not going to be a San Francisco apologist. I think there's a lot that's wrong with the Bay Area. Like I said, I grew up here. I would like to see a lot of the change that people are talking about when they say, I'm going to leave here because these problems aren't being solved quickly enough. That said, I mean, again, being a student of history as I think investors should be, Silicon Valley in this region you know, started well before the 90s dot-com boom. We've been developing talent in the region and deep, deep networks since the 40s and 50s with companies like Lockheed Martin and Fairchild Semiconductor and and having major research universities in the region like Stanford and Berkeley and Lawrence Livermore Lab. And that level of concentration of talent and kind of a the reinforcing flywheel of an ecosystem that can expose smart people to cutting edge ideas, give them the support and resources to take risk and then reward them for that risk. I think it's really hard to build that ecosystem from scratch. You know, maybe in 50 years, another city in the United States will have a similarly established ecosystem, but I think it'll take a long time. So I don't think that Silicon Valley is dead. And my experience in the last 12 months has been that We've seen a lot of founders return to the Bay Area, return to San Francisco. New neighborhoods are popping up all around the city, focused on, of course, the exciting developments in AI, but also just bringing people back together to work hard and share ideas. And that seems to be really uh, alive and well in San Francisco. Yeah, when I read these media reports and then I go walk around outside downtown, it doesn't seem to really align. Yeah, it seems very lively now. There's a lot of people, especially compared to 12 months ago. It definitely feels like there's a lot of activity here. And everyone I meet with who lives here is very excited to be here. And everyone seems to be very bullish on Silicon Valley and, and the Bay Area. So that's been good to see. Yeah. And Sousa is very bullish on on this region. And we've been very lucky to be part of a lot of the in-person ecosystem events and we've hosted them at our office. And, you know, we will send out invitations to different groups of people that we know. And we end up with 200 people or 250 people in our office in the mission on a Thursday night. So that is not a fluke. I think that's been happening all year. People are around, they want to work together and they're excited about the momentum here. When it comes to promoting and marketing SUSE to founders, what's the philosophy there and what's that approach? Well, there are a lot of funds in the ecosystem and certainly in the Bay Area. But the thing that I love about SUSE and the thing that I think resonates with founders is that, like I said, we've stayed small intentionally And we're a boutique firm. So when a founder works with SUSE, they're working with partners directly. And there's a point partner who is typically the lead on the investment and is sort of the main point of contact for that founder. But the entire partnership works together 
to support all of our portfolio companies. And, you know, we've made the decision not to have a large operations and platform team. Every request, whether it's a talent hiring request or help with marketing and, you know, certainly help with fundraising, that just goes directly to the partners and we work one-on-one with the founders on that. So for founders who are looking for that high touch and more bespoke model, SUSE is, I think, a great fit for them. And, you know, the other thing I'd say is that we do have uh, one of the more established seed portfolios in the business. You know, we have been around since 2013 and we've been lucky to have some big winners. So when you're a founder and you take money from a, a VC, you're also joining a portfolio. And I think looking at your peer companies in the portfolio, you should be thinking about who do you want to learn from? Who do you want to be connected to? And SUSE has a, a very strong value proposition there as well. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Through the course of your work, I'm sure you've interacted with a lot of really incredible founders. Are there any traits that just seem to be common patterns that they all have? Relentlessness, just a sheer force of will that it takes to build a company and the ability to move quickly against really tough goals. So yeah, I think the best way to visualize it is a founder who can roll a huge boulder up a hill as quickly as possible. That's who we look for when we make investments. And, you know, there are all types of people in the world who can build companies, subject matter experts, and, you know, people who have really strong leadership skills and are good at running big teams. But I think as seed investors at the early stage, you need people who are willing to run through walls and be very scrappy and creative. And, you know, again, going back to that creativity lens, I think that there's a certain amount of that relentlessness and momentum that you need. So it's so certainly a unique type of person who fits that mold. How do you evaluate for those types of traits when you're having these conversations with early founders that you're considering investing in? How do you evaluate if someone has that trait of relentlessness or if you know, they're willing to run through walls and creativity and things like that? How do you measure that or determine if they have those traits? Well, typically, we like to get to know founders over time. So rather than just meeting someone and investing in them 10 days later, if we can know someone for months or years, then we have data points over time. We can you know, correlate to their ability to make progress and make things happen. So that's one way we love to evaluate. But we rely on references. We rely on understanding the founder's personal narratives. And you know that trait can show up in other ways. It doesn't have to be from building a technology company. It can be experiences in school. It can be experiences on teams or in other environments. You know, some founders we worked with have been in the military or some founders we work with have, you know, been leaders in other organizations like nonprofits that have done big, important projects and work that require that level of navigation and creativity. And so anecdotes and and then references is how we try to triangulate that. But it is difficult because 
yeah, it just takes time to get to know someone to really understand, you know, if they spike in that area. Do you have more time than maybe you had 18 months ago now? Like is the the time to closing a deal, has that extended? Hmm. Well, you know, the interesting thing about seed is that it hasn't really corrected, I would say, in the way that Series A and Series B and beyond has in the market. The best founders, and at best, I mean, the ones who have that momentum, have a demonstrated expertise, that relentlessness, ability to push a boulder up a hill, and and are already quite networked in the early stage funding ecosystem, they're able to run processes very quickly. So we're still seeing deals done in a week or two weeks, maybe, and the prices are competitive. And so, you know, I would love to say I have more time to meet founders and get to know them, but Right now, Seed hasn't corrected in that way. And what we're relying on is our established network. And, you know, of course, where we have areas of expertise, founders do come to us and, you know, want to go through a a more in-depth process to work with SUSE and see if we can partner together on their companies. What's a typical day look like for you? (laughs) Typical day, it's really a combination of meeting new folks. So, you know, I spend... 90% 90% of my time with founders, either in our portfolio or you know, new founders who have been introduced to me or I've reached out to because of what they're working on. So I usually take two to four pitches a day and then have a check-in or two with a portfolio. And then you know, there's always events or opportunities to connect with the broader venture and tech ecosystem, which I do think is important, particularly for a seed fund where a lot of our work for founders is about connecting them to the next level of resources, whether that's a Series A fund or a particular resource around sales or marketing or or what have you. And and so, yeah, that's my typical day. And it's probably hard to put an exact number to this, but you can just feel free to guess. If you had to guess throughout your career, how many pitches have you sat through? Oh, man, that's a good question. I don't know. I I honestly, I would say maybe (laughs) 3,000. That might seem high, but if I'm looking at least at my kind of deal flow tracker and I, maybe that's just the number of companies I've seen uh, or engaged with in some way rather than actually sitting through a pitch. But, you know, I look at about 500 companies on average a year, probably close to a thousand come across my desk in some way. But then the ones that I'm actually engaging with, you know, beyond an initial back and forth. Yeah. Over the last six years, it's in the thousands for sure. Wow. What are some of the common red flags you see in those pitches or not red flags necessarily, but just things that founders do that you wish you could just go and grab them and shake them and say, stop doing this. Like, is there anything that comes to mind that you just routinely see that you wish they wouldn't do? Ah, in a pitch. One thing that I tell, I coach the founders that we work with to be as specific as possible. So, you know, one example is in the fundraise ask. Some founders will say, oh, I'm raising three to $5 million. And my question to them is, well, you know, how much do you need to get to the next milestone? Typically series A and, you know, certain metrics around revenue and, and growth rate and all of that to get there. Is it 3 million? Is it 5 million? I'd like the founder to have a pretty clear idea of how they're going to use the funds, 
and exactly what the business is going to need. So when there are ranges like that, it kind of gives me pause because I think, well, you know, have they just not done the work or are they trying to keep their options open? And so, you know, that's one area that, again, it's not a red flag, but I typically you go a layer deeper and try to understand you know, exactly what they need to capitalize the business. When it comes to go to market, is there anything in particular that you just see founders really struggle with? Well, you know, I see a lot of companies that start out with enterprise sales, which are hard. And when you can get that flywheel going, it's amazing. And it, it usually becomes more fruitful in the long run than going to long tail, you know, SMB sale or, you know, kind of like a, a product-led growth motion unless you can really get that flywheel going. But on the enterprise side, sometimes I'll see founders go too quickly into what I would call kind of like a big company strategy for engaging enterprise customers. So whether that's a lot of travel to conferences and sponsoring events, you know, when you're a startup, you do need to be scrappy and resourceful and you're very resource constrained. So I would rather founders put those resources and that effort towards building a product that's really solving the needs for their enterprise customers. And then on the go-to-market side, be very, very targeted and specific and founder-led in their efforts. So yeah, that's what I'd say. Typically, I see trip-ups happen is when teams over-invest in a more kind of mature enterprise go-to-market motion than they're ready for uh, as an early-stage company. How should founders approach making that transition away from founder-led? Uh, with my or from the conversations I have with founders, that's always a, a very difficult period of time when they make that switch. Do you have any thoughts there of just you know lessons you've learned from watching so many founders make that transition? Yeah, I think the most important element of that transition is the people, because the founder obviously has a unique insight, a strategy that's worked well for them as they get the company up and running, build product, and engage their early customers. But that handoff to the new sales leader is crucial. And so taking the time to evaluate and not just hire the first person who's available, but really, really understand what their fit will be in the company and what their fit will be for their customers is crucial. So I definitely, I tell founders, take the time, do not make a quick hire because inevitably those quick hires turn into you need to transition that person out of the role and then it's disruptive for the team and for your customers. So that's very important. The second thing I would say is I've found when hiring the first sort of senior sales leader that's not the CEO, typically teams have more success when they're hiring not directly from industry. Maybe the person will have industry expertise in some way, maybe uh, at some point in their career, they were in that industry or they've sold to the industry before. But again, if if you're hiring from, let's say, one of your incumbent competitors, typically those folks will come into a startup and have big company habits and expectations about spend and resources and strategy. Like I said, you know, going immediately to these large conferences and spending hundreds of thousands on sponsorship deals and things like that. And so what I've seen work better from a go-to-market leader perspective when you're transitioning from founder-led sales to the first sales leader is 
someone who is still a bit scrappier, who has experience from a quickly growing technology company and can kind of foresee how scaling will start straining their resources and how systems and the sales team might break, but how they can resolve that quickly. And and that familiarity with the tech scaling trajectory, I think, is more important in most cases than familiarity with the market because you can train someone on the market. It's hard to give them that experience of the quickly scaling tech company without them actually having been in it before. Now we're into the final couple of questions here. What opportunities are you most excited about? If there's founders listening in, who should get in touch? What types of markets are you really excited about today? Yeah, well, you know, I have to say, you, know, you mentioned my husband, Spike. I spend a lot of time looking at insurance companies because uh, my husband's built a company in insurance. And I think there is a ton of opportunity in that market. So anyone building, you know, software tools or tech enabled services in insurance would love to chat with them. The other area of interest that's growing for me is actually in security and particularly cybersecurity. And this has to do with the proliferation of AI tools for actually the kind of the nefarious bad actors in the ecosystem. I think we're just at the beginning of a wave of very serious cyber attacks on individuals and companies driven by AI capabilities, the ability for AI to copy someone's voice or likeness and get through the typical safeguards via social engineering tactics. And so I've heard more and more of this popping up recently. And I'd love to talk with anyone who is interested in building something that maybe looks like a wealth front or a Robin Hood, but for personal cybersecurity, just giving a um, consumer a landscape of where their vulnerabilities are, how they can engage with their different financial institutions and other tech platforms that might expose them to vulnerabilities. And I think this, I mean, it's obviously a growing market. I think it will continue to grow and will impact more people over time. Final question now, and this will be a prediction question. So how do you predict the world of seed investing is going to change or what's going to happen in this world over the next 12 months? Well, I think that it, it might not change as much as, you know, we would maybe like on the venture funding side in terms of prices. I imagine that they'll still stay quite strong. But I do think we'll probably see a die down in terms of AI startups coming into the ecosystem as we realize how strong the incumbent position is when you already have an established platform and workflow, easily integrating AI functionality into those existing systems means that it's quite hard for startups to compete when they're you know building something new in Gen AI. And so I think we might see a little bit of a die down in terms of founders exploring AI opportunities versus other markets. And then also, I think we will probably see a variety of funds that won't be able to raise the size of fund that they were trying to raise as limited partners reallocate given the new interest rate environment we're in. So we'll see that dynamic play out. And I imagine it, it might create more of a complicated fundraising environment for new founders coming through. But I also think there are the established funds who have been early stage investors who are, uh, for a long time that are excited to deploy in the ecosystem today. So I wouldn't discourage founders too much on that front. We'll have to circle back in 12 months and, and check in on these predictions. Sounds good. 
We are going to have to wrap here. If there's founders that are listening in who do want to get in touch, where's the best place for them to go? You can reach me. Uh, my email is easiest. I check it daily. Um, it's Courtney at SusaVentures.com. And yeah, I would love to chat with founders who are raising initial rounds of funding and see if we can be helpful for them. Amazing. Courtney, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it. I've had a lot of fun and I know the audience is going to love this conversation as well. So thanks again. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Brett. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 